Live from the Mert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app and take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time, but only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. Before I get into uh, uh, breaking down today's show, though, just a quick reminder uh, that the trial of um, LA City Councilman Mark Willie Thomas uh, is now underway, being watched here in the city, in the state, indeed across the country. This high profile African American long-standing 30-year-plus elected official uh, on trial in uh, downtown Los Angeles. And this is the only station in town uh, that every day is giving you a daily download. So tune in today and every day during this uh, four-, five-, six-week trial at 4.35 p.m. Uh, to Ariva Martin in real time. Ariva Martin, a Harvard-trained lawyer herself, uh, but in conversation every day she is with our new justice correspondent, uh, attorney Dion Raymond. Uh, and every day they'll be uh, walking you through the details of what happened each day in this uh, historic trial, uh, federal bribery trial of Mark Rudy Thomas. So uh, uh trial kicked off yesterday. Uh, the jury, for the most part, was seated yesterday. We are told some more uh, jury issues to deal with this morning. And uh, I'm not sure where they are right now. Court starts at about nine o'clock, I think. Um, so a few minutes ago, they, I'm sure they gaveled in, and uh, we should be heading real quickly here toward opening remarks, uh, opening remarks, opening arguments uh, in the case um, USA uh, v. Mark Rudy Thomas. As you know, uh, the prosecution uh, presents first, uh, and so today we are going to get an earful of the case that uh, the government intends to make against uh, Councilman Mark Rudy Thomas. Uh, and, of course, in the weeks to come, he'll get a chance finally to tell his story. You know our position here. Fundamental fairness, due process, presumption of innocence. And so we will see how this unfolds. But every day, again, uh, at 4.35 p.m., tune in to Ariva Martin in real time to get your daily download on what happened today and every day in that trial. Uh, as I said, a great show on tap for today here on Tavis Smiley. In our second hour, the California Reparations Task Force has had its last public hearing as the group now navigates the process of preparing its final report recommending how the state should apologize and compensate black fellow citizens for the harms caused by slavery and discrimination. UCLA professor John Michaels testified in front of the California Reparations Task Force and joins us in hour two to discuss what next? In our third hour, Dr. Angel Jones on her push for black bereavement leave, black bereavement leave and the pushback she has received for daring to publicly advance such a bold idea. So here's the question. Do black folk deserve time off to grieve and process their emotions when subjected to pain and suffering, oftentimes caused by white supremacy? It is a question I think 
worth wrestling with, and we'll do just that in Hour 2 with Dr. Angel Jones. But in this first hour today, a conversation about the intersection, the relationship between the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement with Emmy and Peabody Award-winning social justice advocate Dr. Janet Dewart-Bell. Dr. Janet Bell, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am delighted to be here, delighted <laughs> to be in conversation with you for the hour. And and uh, let me just start here. I, I, I know that you are uh, uh, a major force, a force of nature, frankly, in your own right. And we're going to get into your work and witness in this hour. Uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't start this hour by offering, if I might, uh, taking a personal privilege to say a word uh, about your late great husband, Derek Bell. There are so many conversations. Yes, yes, yes. There's so many conversations in the country today about critical race theory. It is being demonized and bastardized and uh, um, exploited in so many ways. And I wish he were around uh, to, in his own words, set the record straight as the person who introduced this notion to us, critical race theory. But I wonder, uh, before we get into your work and witness again, if you might just say a word about your husband. I had a chance to meet him a number of times and spend a number of hours in dialogue with him. I know you miss him dearly, as do his other uh, friends and family. Um, But again, because that relationship uh, was so uh, obviously meaningful to you and meaningful to so many of us, his work that is, uh, I wonder if you might say a word about Derek Bell. Yes, I'm always delighted to talk about Derek Bell. And I often call him the great Derek Bell. And I say, I can say that. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when he and I first met you, when you interviewed him for your uh, other radio program, and we came to your studio. First of all, congratulations for keeping the faith all these years Thank you. and for being right where you belong. And you, we got there, and it was maybe 5.30 in the morning or something, <laughs> and uh, Derek was whisked into the studio to do the interview. And after the interview... You came out and you saw me. I was on my computer. And you said, oh, is this Mrs. Bell? And Derek, of course, said yes. And you gave me this big hug. And from that moment on, um, I was a fan before, but I've been a fan all of this time because I think that you really understand that race matters, as Mm. our dear friend Cornell West does. And so so what Derek has done is, had has done i sometimes speak of him in the present so forgive me for that but over over his life he considered himself a teacher which he thought was the highest calling he was a teacher who happened to have a law degree and was a brilliant lawyer and and attorney and before he became an academic something that he had wanted to do for many years he was very much involved in the civil rights movement he had been hired by Thurgood Marshall can't get much better than that absolutely uh, when he when he was uh, working in the NAACP office in Pittsburgh the reason he was there was because even though he graduated top of his class along with his classmate Richard Thornburg this shows you how how racism plays he and Dick Thornburg, who remained friends all their lives, even though Richard Thornburg was conservative, mm-hmm. but not quite these conservatives that uh, claim that title today. Um, but Derek and he went out on interviews when they graduated. Now, remember, they're both on law review, almost identical grades. And the, the law firms in Pittsburgh said, you know, we've never had a 
whatever they called us then, a, <laughs> a, a Negro partner, and we're not going to start with you. So Derek took this job at NAACP office, and Thurgood Marshall came through there, and he said, as Thurgood Marshall could only say, boy, what's a lawyer like you doing in a job like this? He said, come to New York with me. Derek dropped everything, hmm. came to New York to work for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And he was so grateful for that. During that time, he worked a long time. He had a small office, not these gigantic offices that you see in major law firms. And even today, thank goodness that the uh, Legal Defense Fund has grown and the NAACP has grown. But he worked very closely with the likes of um, Constance Baker Motley, mm-hmm. um, when he, and with NACP Robert L. Carter, and and others, and along with Constance Baker Motley, he helped integrate the universities of Mississippi and Georgia. In uh, a book written about her, there's a quote where she says she could not have done her work without Derrick Bell. He was the young guy on the staff. And as I said, brilliant. He handled over 300 school desegregation cases. And I know we're celebrating International Women's Day, but I also want to say Derek was probably a better feminist than I am. Our our friend Gloria Steinem actually named him an honorary woman. And that's probably right. The, The reason I say... Derek was a better feminist than I is because he always thought women were superior because he had this dynamic mother who really instilled upon him and her three other children and all four of them born in the 30s. Black children graduated from college mm. with a mother who was a stay-at-home mom and a father who worked uh, no-collar jobs, worked, did a garbage hauling business to support his family. This is huge, and this is the story that of many people in mm-hmm. black America. So Derek handled over 300 school desegregation cases. So he is grounded in, in the work of um, liberation, mm-hmm. the work of not just civil rights, as uh, theologian Ruby Sales says, it, you know, we call it the Civil Rights Movement because that was the name, but really what it, it was is the American black Freedom movement, and mm. we think about it, if we think about it that way, we know that we sang freedom songs. We didn't sing civil rights songs, mm-hmm. and so our eyes on the prize means that we don't just want diversity; we want equality, and that's what we should be aiming for. But uh, Derek um, at at Harvard uh, was the first tenured African American professor when he got that position he vowed not to be the last and he fought very hard for that he joined the student protests to get more people of color particularly women of color that didn't happen for many many years the yes. first one being uh Lonnie Lonnie Guineer. Guineer. yeah yes indeed uh who uh who unfortunately has 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 died there you know you were talking in your second hour you're talking to someone who wants to have what uh what did what did you call it it wasn't uh post-traumatic black stress, black, but, uh, bra- black bereavement leave black bereavement yes. leave yes yes but derek always said to be a progressive black professor at harvard always had you in the midst of a cauldron and because it, and derek's position was even though he he embraced uh, being a uh, 
black professor, because he started, he, he started teaching in 1969. He was tenured in 1971. And, but, and that was also the time that women were coming into Harvard in significant numbers. And the, so Derek became the beacon, not only for the black students and other students of color, but for the women, because they knew that Derek Bell had such a high level of integrity and ethics and morals. And they knew that if they went to him any time of the day or night, he was with his first wife, uh, Jewel, that their, that their honor would be intact and they would get the kind of sensitive mm-hmm. human treatment that they, that they sought. And, um, it, it's just so Derek's position, not only in terms of, uh, uh, legal studies, but and teaching is just, I think his moral leadership yes. is one that, that I want to lift up. He was a strong person of faith, and he always acted in a way that was, uh, that was honorable and that really treated people as if he wanted and, to be treated. He was, yes. Yeah, no, no, and, and speaking, of his, uh, speaking of his moral leadership, um, what I want to do when we come forward in just a moment here, uh, is to mm-hmm. I want to I want to jump straight to um, Derek uh, Bell uh, leaving Harvard. He left Harvard over principle. Every one of us should live our lives. It seems to me by a certain set of immutable principles. Derek Bell did that. And uh, if you don't know this backstory, and I'm glad that I asked this question, didn't know it would go in this direction. But we're learning more about the backstory of the man who created critical race theory. Everywhere you go, everywhere you tune in, everything you read, there's a uh, there's some conversation uh, again, some exploitation, if if you will, of critical race theory. But this is the wife of the man who uh, established this notion of critical race theory. And I want to ask two questions when we come forward before we get into her work. Number one, um, why Derek Bell, on a matter of principle, uh, as an African-American tenured professor, and you heard her say a moment ago, he got there at 69 and was tenured in 71. That didn't take long. Uh, it takes a whole lot longer to get tenured. Uh, Derek Bell is such a bad brother. He got there in 69 and they tenured this Negro in 71. Um, but he leaves Harvard years later over a matter of principle. I know the story. I want you to know it if you don't know why this brother left Harvard and went on uh, to New York. And then we'll get a, a quick response on CRT and how Janet uh, Dewitt Bell, uh, his wife, his widow, uh, processes all of the attack on this formulation, this framework that Derek Bell first gave us. And then we'll go straight away into her work as we're talking this hour about the relationship between, and she's doing some of that already, right? The relationship between the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement as we celebrate uh, March as Women's History Month. You're listening to Dr. Janet Dewitt Bell on KBL. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Tavis Smiley and Dr. Janet uh, Dewitt Bell on KBLA Talk 1580 and talking about conversations that matter. This is one of them in her own right. She is a uh, an Emmy and Peabody award-winning social justice advocate. She's a scholar. She is an author of any number of books. Has another one coming out uh, uh, this year. So a lot to talk about regarding her own work and witness uh, in her own unique way, in her own unique style. But we've been talking, at least here to four, uh, about her late great husband, Derek Bell. Uh, and if the name Derek Bell is not familiar with you, uh, uh, to you, look it up, read about him. He, uh, longtime Harvard professor, history-making Harvard professor, uh, and is the father of critical race theory. So you've heard that term being bandied about, uh, being used as a political football, being used by many on the right. 
to push back against uh, a changing demographic in this country uh, uh, and other issues that they don't want to deal with. So when you can't change the game, what do you do? You change the rules. And so you use something like CRT and you twist it like a pretzel um, to advance an agenda that is antithetical, I think, to the best interest of most Americans, certainly African-Americans. I'll put a pin in that for the moment. Um, but I want to ask uh, Janet uh, Dewitt-Bell, Dr. Janet Dewitt-Bell, before we get into her work, uh, two other final questions about uh, her late great husband, Derek Bell. One, if she would tell the story right quick of why Derek Bell, over a matter of principle, left the Harvard Law School after being tenured, didn't have to have been there until he died. But he left Harvard Law School over a matter of principle. I'll let her explain that. And then I want to get her take in a moment on how she processes all of this um, this demonizing of CRT. Uh, we'll take those questions, Dr. Bell, in that order. Take it away. Yes, well, we talked about moral leadership, and you talked about how unusual it was to gain tenure in two years. But I wanted to say that that was a matter of the, he was already teaching, and the students, black students, took leadership as well as white students, wanting, they, they knew that the world was changing, even though uh, the other people, uh, people at Harvard didn't necessarily know the world was, <laughs> world was changing, and they sought Derek Bell, so he always felt and in our household, we say students first. The students had a great part. They told Derek, uh, "This is this is this is important to know the, the back this backstory." But when he went to Harvard, they said, "You teach for two years, and we will give you tenure." At the end of two years, they said, "Well, you know, uh, you need to teach another year <laughs> because you may maybe you know how they you know how yes, they do it." Yes, right? yes, 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 yes. And and Jewel Bell. His his wife at the mm -hmm. time, you know, I met Derek after after the wonderful Jewel Bell died. Wonderful woman mm -hmm. by anybody's. Uh, that's all I know about her. Uh, so she said, "Wait a minute. Harvard needs you. You don't need Harvard. If they don't give you tenure, we're going to leave now." So this 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 was already set in stone. Mm. <laughs> so he got there. So he got his tenure. And then at some point, he also he left Harvard for a few years, almost five years, to be the dean of the University of Oregon School of Law. Mm -hmm. Where and Harvard, when he left Harvard, they all they voted him tenured to come back because he was so good, and the students just loved him. They still do. And so, uh, at he left the University of Oregon because they would they refused to tenure and. Uh, super qualified Asian American women and instead tenured several white men. Derek said no. So he left the deanship there, went back to Harvard. And then he became very much involved with supporting the student protest and protesting himself. But he always lifted up the student protest. And so he went on unpaid leave for his last two years there. Mm -hmm. And Harvard's Harvard's rule is if you don't come if you don't come back in two years, you lose your tenure. So Derek went into that clear eyed, right? And mm -hmm. by that time and at the end of that uh, period we were which we were together and we were married at the end of his tenure at Harvard. And so Harvard wouldn't budge on tenuring he wanted he he insisted upon that after all this time Harvard needed to tenure a woman of color mm -hmm. and Harvard refused to do they had no excuse not to do it but they refused to do so so Derek willingly with some with some battling it a little bit but understood what he was doing gave up his uh valued tenure at Harvard Law School and from he was then hired by the 
uh, then dean at the at New York University School of Law. Yeah. Right, by the way, one of his many former students, and that's where he lived. And <laughs> I want to. I want to just put. I want twenty years. I want to just put a pin yes. in this. Yeah, he was there for the last two decades. Yes. I want to put a pin in this right quick. Yes. Um, and yes. I want the audience to understand who Derek Bell really was. Derek Bell leaves Oregon because they wouldn't tenure an Asian American woman, but they kept tenuring white right. males. He leaves one law school because right. they wouldn't tenure an Asian woman. <laughs> He leaves Harvard right. because they wouldn't tenure an African-American woman. Lonnie Guineer, again, ends up being the first black woman to be tenured at Harvard Law, but he leaves Harvard Law. What manner of man leaves two tenured positions? Uh, I hear your point now about how he was a, a better feminist than most women because Derek Bell <laughs> put his career on the line not once but twice for women. He did, and he just felt, he just felt that, that spiritually, morally, uh, that that was the, that that's what he had to do. That the and that the that the students deserved it. It wasn't mm-hmm. about uh, it wasn't about the protest itself. It's about what did the students deserve? You know what what is education? By the way, what is higher education supposed to be? And so how how could Harvey claim to mm-hmm. be this uh, great school and still be? doing 16th century kinds of things as we've seen with recent decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, these, these, positions, yeah. These, these positions aren't easy to come by for anybody, certainly not for black men, and to give up two of them over no. principle, again, underscores who Derek Bell is. I've got just about two and a half minutes yeah. before news, sports, yeah. and traffic. In two and a half minutes, give me your take on the pushback on CRT, and then we're going to, on the other side, get into your work. Janet, do it, Bell. Okay, one, first of all, critical race theory grew out of critical legal studies. It's something that people are, it was aimed at people to study in um, law schools, mm-hmm. not, not, it's certainly not being as something indoctrinated or taught to elementary mm-hmm. students, although, although, you know, one can make an argument that, that it should be. Uh, <laughs> but people who, people who are so opposed to critical race theory, First of all, they don't know what they're talking about right. because all they're doing, they're grabbing onto um, a, a term and they're, and they're putting a, a racist imprimatur on it, which is not there. You know, what it is, is it's history. And especially if you're talking about critical race theory with, in America, it's American history. What are they afraid of? Mm. Why are people trying to ban books? Why are they trying to erase history, particularly black history, because they don't want us to know what a mighty people and the kinds of contributions that black people and other and indigenous people too, but black people made to this country. And you want to say to people like, um, you know, Governor of Florida, who, by the way, graduated from Yale and Harvard, mm-hmm. he's not dumb. He's not a dumb man. Mm-hmm. He just plays one on TV <laughs> because he's playing to a base that 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 he is clearly disrespecting. He's dishonoring his own people. And I was so glad to see all of these young students of all races out there saying, wait a minute, it's like the students at Harvard wanting wanting diverse faculty. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be ignorant. You are trying to you are trying to curtail our education, trying to curtail you're trying to tamper with what should be a future that's open to all of us. Yes, and yes. so the people who are who are against critical race theory are are just uh, they they are up they are afraid. They they are they lack courage. Mm. Uh, uh, they are they are corrupt. 
yeah. and they don't and truly don't know what they're talking about. Very well said. Very well said. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, so there you have it. Uh, our tribute uh, in this first half hour to the late, great Derek Bell. Uh, and that gives you some sense of how he'd be processing this attack on CRT, given what you heard his wife, uh, his widow, Janet uh, uh, Dewitt Bell, offer just now. When we come forward after news, traffic and sports, we'll get into her work uh, as we talk about the relationship between the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement uh, and her various texts. Uh, we'll do all that when we come forward. You know, written a number of texts in her own right, uh, lighting the fires of freedom. She has a new one coming out this year called Blackbirds Singing, inspiring black women's speeches from the Civil War to the 21st century. So uh, we've talked a lot about her husband, Derek Bell, the late, great Derek Bell. But she, again, is a scholar uh, extraordinary uh, of, of her own. Uh, and I want to spend the rest of our time here between now and the top of the hour talking about the relationship between the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. March, of course, is Women's History Month. And I don't want to color that question too much, uh, Dr. Bell. I'll, I'll, I'll let you start and I'll follow you. But what would you say uh, as an opening statement uh, about the relationship between the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement? Well, I think that the foundation for both of those is really black women mm. and that that and that if you look back to the early uh, demonstrations, the women's uh, suffragist movement, that that um, black women really helped inform that, even though they were told to to stay out, to get in the back, take a back mm -hmm, seat. They were mm -hmm. they were they refused to do so. So they really helped. They really informed the women's movement, uh, the progressive women's movement. You said unapologetically progressive? Yes. Uh, the, 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 the unapologetic women's movement. People have perverted a lot of these terms and uh, over over the years. But it's really interesting to me that um, you, that, so for example, when one of the first presidents of the National Organization for Women was a, was a black woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, and she left because they they um, what is it? They backslid, and then after she was uh, the president, they they named her uh, the they put together an all white slate. You know, it's 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 like uh, taking a one step forward, another step back, or some would argue a uh, two two steps mm -hmm. back. So black women have always had to be on the case. You know, the, the our history is really one uh, what it. From both of those movements, servant leadership. Mm -hmm. People did not do this just to do just to do well on their own. It was always a question of doing of doing good. And when I look at uh, the particular the women that I interviewed, I had the honor of interviewing for my book, Lighting the Fires of Freedom. They included people like. Um, Diane, Diane Nash, who did oh, not yes. necessarily have, was not this intersect, intersection between feminism and, uh, dealing with, um, the, the black freedom movement. She was really focused on, on, on the freedom movement. She was a young woman, a student at Fisk University who, uh, took over the freedom ride when the core bus, the Congress on Racial Equality bus was firebombed and they were going to stop the freedom ride. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you, if you allow, and this is the kind of women, black women that I that I write about, and that and, and that I want to lift up. When she said, "If you allow violence to stop us, then we will never." 
progress. Mm -hmm. And she said it in her quiet way. And she was also one of those jail, no bail people, even when she was pregnant. She later went back, uh, after she went back to her hometown in Chicago, became a tenant organizer. Mm -hmm. Just recently, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, a long overdue, because she was a strategist. Some people uh, dismiss women's roles in both of these movements, black women's roles in both of these uh, uh, movements, but but black women brought strategy and planning and courage Mm -hmm. to both both of those movements. And um, recently, too, I want to mention that person I did not interview, who's not in my book, uh, Dorothy Pittman Hughes, who died recently, yes. and uh, she died at age 84. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, the New York Times obituary where it says, and I'll, it says a close friend of Gloria Steinem, uh, the D- Dorothy Pittman Hughes toured with her and spoke widely about the need for women to confront racism and classism in their ranks. So let me underscore that is that it's hard sometimes for you know and and. I'm guilty of this too, in a sense. You know, when we were when we were fighting to break open the doors on the C suite and all that, all that kind of thing. Sometimes we did not really up, uh, were not as progressive mm-hmm. as we were in terms of understanding the systemic. Um, uh, some of us were the systemic racism and sexism that we had to combat. It, it's not about it's not about individual achievement. It's about achievement for a, for a community. And for a people, mm. and somehow we we as um, as we have been seduced by positions of power, we sometimes forget that you know. And people don't do like you did, you know. Go back to the community to build your studio, <laughs> mm, yeah. to 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 think about that uh, to give more than lip service to com- to community empowerment. But I think that as as I've seen women. Who have been, who have really been both feminists and uh, black liberation fighters? I see that they understand that uh, that in order to progress, we need we need to work with everybody who will work with us, but work with us in terms of integrity. We're not going to give up uh, integrity. You know, I consider myself a black feminist, and. By that, I define the way uh, Dr. Janetta Cole defines it. A black feminist is one who totally believes, and you can see I'm passionate about women's equality, but I don't, I, I take that, but I, it's not, I, I've never had an argument with black men, for instance. You know, and people oftentimes when I was involved, I chaired a commission for women and things like that. People would ask me questions and and they want to bring in negative things. And I said, well, you know, I understand that black women were not allowed to speak on the stage at the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. I understand that. And that was wrong. But that was that that was during the time. And I and I understand that. And I've I've interviewed um, uh, people who I mean, it it was a hurtful thing. And I guess had had they been able to do it over again, <laughs> yeah. they they might have been Derek Belvin that women would have been able to speak. Yeah, but what what do you think? I'm glad you raised that. I was I was uh, I didn't want to interrupt, but I wanted to get in here and ask this very question because I've discussed this any number of times as you can imagine over the course of my career. But I've never, I never had a chance to ask anybody this particular question, and you're the perfect person, mm-hmm. Janet, uh, uh, do it better uh-huh. to ask this question of what what do you think was lost? 
what was sacrificed all those years when black women were not allowed to speak publicly? You mentioned the civil rights movement. We know that Dorothy Height was one of the big six uh, and Dorothy Height uh, or, or big eight. Some people define it depending on who, who you're counting in that group. Uh, but she was one of the organizers and, and they would not let Dorothy Height speak uh, at that march. Mahalia Jackson got to sing, as we all know. But Dorothy Height, one of the organizers, could not speak. And there are any number of examples. You've laid some out already where in that particular era, uh, black women were, were relegated uh, to being silenced. What do you think we lost by not hearing their voices then? We lost um, steps toward equality for everyone. You know, it's really true that, um, that to quote Dr. King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, the threat, and the threat to black people uh, was that we did not, uh, use all of all of our all of our talent and all of and all of our vision and so we're all if you're always um, fighting for a seat at the table or as a Shirley Chisholm would say you know if you if it's not a seat you know bring bring a folding chair mm. I think that, I think that was a Shirley <laughs> that's Chisholm right quote. that's right <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but at any rate you lose you lose a lot of time and energy doing that you know that that not having that acceptance and even when for example the fight that uh, the wonderful Merle Evers had yes. to be uh to become the pre- president or the chairman excuse me of the NAACP i mean that that was absolutely you you would have thought by that time that that would have been a foregone conclusion you know some people think that oh, well she wasn't um that if she was quote just um, uh, Medgar Evers' widow. She was not just anything. No, she was a leader in her own I, right. No, I love. And they were. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I love. I love your uh, part of the book uh, about her. Uh, the book I'm talking about now, of course, is the lighting the fires of freedom. African-American women in the civil rights movement. If you've not got that book, it's in my library. Uh, I highly recommend getting. If you can get your hand on a copy of it, it's called Lighting the Fires of Freedom. African-American women in the civil rights movement, and Merle Evers is one of the persons uh, that Janet uh, uh, Dewitt Bell talks to for that book, along with Kathleen Cleaver and Leah Chase and Judy Richardson, uh, Diane Nash, many others uh, are featured <clears throat> in that particular book. Uh, she has a new book coming out later this year called Blackbird Singing, Inspiring Black Women's Speeches from the Civil War to the 21st Century. When we come forward, I want to ask Dr. Janet Dewitt Bell, um, what it would mean uh, for America to have a reckoning, put another way, what it would mean for America finally to come to terms with the fact that she laid out earlier, that black women simply have been the foundation of both of these movements, the civil rights movement, or as she put it, the black freedom movement and uh, the women's rights movement. What would it mean for America to have a reckoning to truly come to terms and acknowledge that black women have been the foundation of both of those movements? We'll get an answer to that and a great deal more when we come forward with Dr. Janet Dewitt Bell on KBLA Talks 1580. The station you turn to when you've had it up to here with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Janet Dewitt Bell, do you think that America ever will? And if so, what does it look like? Um, what's it feel like? Uh, how do we frame this notion of America coming to terms with the fact that black women have, in fact, to your point, been the foundation of both of these movements, the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement? You did ask me a very tough question. And so I think two things. One, that I will have, I'll have to say that, that I don't 
think will reach a point where it will be completely understood by the majority of people that that's the fact. Mm -hmm. I think what we need to have is a significant number of people who do that so that even if, if people don't necessarily believe it, that we can dismantle systems of uh, discrimination. We can show that, that, that if, if, if we get people to understand, particularly uh, white women, what black women have done and what black people have done for their liberation and and not be and uh that that it's not it's not just for black liberation mm. it's for the liberation of all people and 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 so when you ha when you look at um the this the great suburban white women vote you know they're they're yes. always they, they went from the quote aggrieved white male, uh, you know, twenty years ago, now to the suburban white woman vote. What does that mean? That means that there's that they're saying, and that that they are that some people are assuming that suburban white women have to be treated a different way. And for some people who manipulate who manipulate them with fear, uh, because they are corrupt and they. And they don't want systems that are fair to everyone. If white women would understand that their future is tied to the future of black women, of all women, that they would be better off. That 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 what they are doing is they're sacrificing their their the future of their own children when they don't support things such as voting rights, mm -hmm. uh, voting rights and stuff, and and that they. And, and if they waste their vote to support for people who would enslave them by, in a, in a certain way, who would treat them less than second, as second class citizens, what are they doing for their children? Let me, let, Black let me ask, women have always had, yeah. No, let, let me ask you a point blank question. Uh, and it might be a mm -hmm. bit, it might be a bit uncomfortable, but I know you can handle it. Um, let me, cause I've had this discussion in a variety of ways, but I want to come right to this. Mm -hmm. As a black woman, here we are in Women's History Month. As a black uh -huh. woman, do you and other black women you know in this moment in late modernity feel the right word here? Feel abandoned uh, by white women politically? No, I do not. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't feel abandoned in a, in a large sense. I feel I feel that they don't understand in many in many ways, mm -hmm. and I feel that and maybe maybe the. Abandon is too strong a word for me, okay. but I really feel that they don't understand uh, that the, we, the, we're always pushing to show the value that we bring to the table. Yeah. Uh, and whether and and if you if you notice some of the lar some of the national women's groups now have finally had had it's it's sort of like what is it the ur urban areas when you say you get a black mayor when you have a economic problem oh, or yeah. something like that mm -hmm. and, and so some of these national women's groups uh, are now uh, headed by black women and years ago I the person in the back of the room pushing for that and I and I think that's the case I don't think it's I don't think that uh, we've been abandoned I think that there needs to be for progressive people, sort of a progressive awakening. Yeah. I don't know a na a national teaching on a number of things. One on uh, on voting rights uh, and what's our other great existential threat: a uh, climate change. Those yes. two things. Yeah. But so 
So, may, so maybe I'll put you on the spot, Tavis. Maybe you need to call it. Maybe you need to organize a national teaching. <laughs> I like it. As soon as you said it, I, I love the idea of a national teaching. Uh, of course, there are any number of subjects that ought to be on that syllabus. Uh, if we're going to have a national teaching. But I, I asked that question in part because when you see the numbers, and you know this as well or better than I do, when you see the numbers of white women who voted for Donald Trump and any number of other things I could point to, that's why I put the word politically in there. There are a lot of people that I talk to and run into who feel that, uh, that white women just uh, not all of them certainly we don't want to uh, demean an entire group of people but many in that group just don't seem to get it politically and they cast votes for things uh, as you put it that are not in their best interest and so that was uh, the reason for my asking that question when we come forward our remaining moments with dr janet do it bell on kbla talk 15 do it bell if i had the time i could do this another two or three hours i only have two and a half minutes but i want to close on this note to your point about a national teaching um what would we be saying in this uh <laughs> national teaching about how we move from talking just about diversity as you said earlier everybody's talking about de and i these days but you raised the issue of equality and we ain't even got to equity yet but how do we move from a from a surface conversation about de and i to talking about real equality and equity in this country i think as, as you know, I focus on intergenerational work, mm -hmm. and I think that if we if we put that to uh, young people about their future, they they will push the converse, they will push the conversation. But they need elders like me to support that and to give them the benefit of my many decades mm -hmm. on on this earth. And I think that that's what we do. We have an open conversation with I'm, I'm a member of this group called the global citizen circle and they, we believe in it, it seems so quaint but civil discourse bringing people together to actually talk yes and um and um i recently i i introduced um a, a woman for, for an award and she said to invite people to a conversation and not a fight mm. and you can tell it, it part part of it is just my it's my natural optimism. You know, I thought about your question of, of, of abandonment that you asked just sure. before the break. And I, ha and I thought about, I shouldn't just give the answer for myself, that there's some people who do feel mm -hmm. abandoned. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that, 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 is a, that, that's, that that's a reality. Mm -hmm. Not only do they feel, they are, because some, they, they look and they see that doors that uh, black women see that doors that they have opened have now, yes. uh, once you get inside, those seats at the table ha are being occupied mm -hmm. by uh, by other people, uh, and it, it, you know, and so yes, there are people who feel much more strongly about that, yeah. and with good reason than I do. I'll tell you this though: um, that national teaching is a really good idea, and what's a better idea is that when we have it, we have to engage in civil discourse. I was so happy to hear you say that. Uh, we call this engage radio, not outrage radio. We believe that uh, in in an unapologetic, uh, unapologetic uh, progressive agenda unapologetically progressive agenda we believe in that, as you said earlier but we also believe in civil discourse we call it engage not outrage mm -hmm. and i'm happy to hear you acknowledge that that's what our country is lacking it seems to me civil discourse um her books are many but i recommend two right now lighting the fires of freedom african-american women in the civil rights movement and the forthcoming text we'll have her back on when this one drops it's called blackbird singing inspiring black women's speeches from the civil war to the 21st century until that book drops and until you're back on this program dr janet do it bell what an honor <laughs> to have had you on this program oh. we appreciate you Oh, thank you so very much. It's it's been a great honor, and you know, and I think we have to say this too. You know, I'm, 
Uh, Tavis, I love you, and I love what you've done for your whole career. So thank you very much for what you do. I love you back, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. Hour two of Tavis Smiley when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15.